Maps. I'm a happy alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Hi. I didn't know you made maps. They must pay you by the amount of ink you use. Well, you're <laughs> sending me to get down here. You know, it's a great pleasure to be here helping celebrate the 6th to 7th birthday of AA and Twilight Group's anniversary. And, you know, this is the way it should be. I came down here, and I didn't know Vivian, never met Vivian, but I've met so many old friends and met a lot of new friends, and that's... Uh, it's a great experience. You know, we got a lot of sophistication now. We got uh, sobrietyww.com and Bill Wilson chat rooms and, and all this, but I don't think there's anything ever going to take the place of one drunk sharing with another. And uh, I want to thank you all for allowing me to come down here tonight and share with you because it'll assure me that I won't drink today, and that's what this thing's all about. Uh, you know, we hear a lot today about... Uh, uh, I guess, you know, AA has changed a whole lot in a lot of ways, but I don't really believe that it's changed uh, any more than just good old drunks coming in to get help. And, and I think if we lose a perspective of that, we might be in trouble. If I have a message tonight, it's, uh, it's the fact that I'm a real alcoholic that's found a substitute for alcohol. And I didn't realize that that's what I was looking for. But I found a substitute for alcohol here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for that substitute to work, I had to do some things. I had to get a home group. I had to get a sponsor. I had to get these steps and put the principles I learned through these steps uh, to work in my life a day at a time. And because I did those things and because of a God of my understanding I found here, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since September the 25th, 1973. Now, for that, I'm very grateful. But you're going to find out as I tell you my story that while I was looking for this substitute, I tried about everything there was out there to try to substitute for liquor. So it's, I take great pleasure in telling you tonight, since that day in September, that I came into AA, I haven't found it necessary to be analyzed, tranquilized, hypnotized, or baptized. It's <coughs> AA, I'm a lucky drunk or a fortunate drunk. AA's done the whole job for me. You also hear a lot mentioned now. We hear a lot about uh, problems other than alcohol. Well, I'm here to tell you I had problems other than alcohol before I ever knew alcohol existed. See, I'm not only a drunk, I'm a hillbilly. And I'm, I was born right in the middle of the Depression. I'm the only son of a hillbilly school teacher, and they named me Sterling Fletcher Watts III. I don't think I had a chance right from the very start, you know. And... Some things started right away with me. I never felt like I had any identity, and the reason for that is my mother had taught school for 40 years, so the first 18 years of my life, I was known as Miss Kitty's little boy. <clears throat> and I married a prominent farmer's daughter from across the river, and overnight I became Mac Jackson's son-in-law. And I moved down to South Carolina to get away from some of that foolishness, and I had one son who was quite a football player. He was All-State, played at Clemson, and signed with the pros, and when I got out here, I became Waldo's daddy. Now, I, I tell you this, it's necessary for me to tell you how I got into AA, and I know a lot of people down here from Casey and, and over at Lexington and Columbia just came up and knocked on the door and said, hey, we've been drinking a little bit too much and we're having a few problems. We'd like to get in here and get your steps and get spiritual. Well, I didn't come in here that way. I had a lot of help. I had help from jailers and state troopers and judges and preachers and and but mainly I had I had help from Al-Anon. Uh, in fact, I say I got the program of Alcoholics Anonymous when I became powerless over Al-Anon. <laughs> you see, my wife went to Al-Anon a long time before I came to AA, and uh, you know. With this identity problem, you can imagine how I felt when you let me stand up here and say I'm Sterling Watts. I'm now, I thought I had arrived. At last I found out who I was. And the first night they asked me to read, the chairman said, and to read how it works, and he forgot my name. He said, Nancy's husband. So, <laughs> and, and you know, for, for an alcoholic that's got an ego like I have, that's a good thing. And today, uh, I sit around these tables wherever I am, and if I get a little bit 
full of my, a little bit too big for my britches or getting to think I'm pretty important, there's always somebody like Marie or Homer or somebody like that to call on, oh, what's his face? And, uh, and I need that. And I need that constantly. Now, you know, <clears throat> when I did my fourth and fifth step, I pretty, pretty well settled on the fact that I was a, a, a weird kid that grew up in a normal home. And, uh, and I accepted that. But then, you know, they're studying us alcoholics. We're the most studied species other than white rats that there is. And, and they came up with this thing about a dysfunctional family. Well, now it made, sounded pretty good to me. It sounded better than me being a weird kid. So I went to my sponsor and I said, hey, we may have been made a mistake here. You reckon I came from one of these dysfunctional families? He said, I'm sure you did. You were there, weren't you? Well, <laughs> And really, when I look back, everywhere I went was dysfunctional. Sunday school classes were dysfunctional. The army unit I was in was dysfunctional. Uh, now, there's one thing that's been consistent in my life, and that's lying. I probably started lying when I started talking. And, and I had a lie for everything. I had a lie to make you look worse than me, or I had a lie to make me look better than you. had a lie for every occasion, but mainly I was a little bit different liar. I didn't like to just lie and leave because you may not have believed me. So I'd, I'd tell a lie and I wanted to stay around and I stayed there <clears throat> to make sure that I'd made you believe this. And uh, for instance, I was su such a liar. In our home, you had to, uh, if you were going to eat a meal on Sunday, you had to recite a Bible verse that you'd memorized. And I was quite capable of memorizing Bible verses, but I took a lot of pleasure in making them up. And what? <laughs> One of the verses that I made was, If a man goeth on a long journey and returneth not, he stayeth a long while. Now, <laughs> and it, it's bad enough to be making up scriptures, but what I dearly love is see the old folks thumbing through that Bible, <laughs> trying to find what the little tot had found they didn't know about. That just made me warm all over, you know. Now, in this home, uh, there were four of us, a mother and a father, and I had one sister. And she was five years older than I, and she was the second perfect human being that ever walked the face of the earth. She never made a mistake. She never told a lie. She made straight A's all the way through school. She was valedictorian in high school. She was dean list in college. Perfect human being. So somewhere along the line, I figured out if I was going to get any attention, it wasn't going to be from being good. Because she'd cornered the market on that. So if I was going to be good, I had to get any attention, I had to be bad, I guess. And I, was, I accomplished that pretty good. Now, drinking as a teenager was not a problem for me because I had all that supervision there in the mountains. Everybody knew me and I knew my mother. But shortly, and I know that I tried, I tried booze and beer and so forth as a teenager, but it just wasn't, it didn't enter into uh, to my life at all. And shortly after graduating from high school, I, I enlisted in the service, and I had to go 55 miles away from home to, to be inducted into the Army, and that was the first time I'd ever been that far away from the mountains without adult supervision. And that night, that was, that night I got drunk and I got sick and I almost died. And that was in September of 1946. And 27 years later, in September of 73, I'm three states away still drinking and still almost dying and still getting sick. So there's absolutely... Uh, I'm satisfied a lot of insanity that goes along with the disease of alcoholism. It has absolutely nothing to do with the insane actions that I did while I was drinking. You see, I altered my lifestyle off and on. As I look back, I altered my lifestyle, whatever it had to be, my place of employment, where I lived, where I went to church, whatever I had to do, I altered just so I'd be able to drink. And I didn't know I was protecting my habit that way. Uh, my Army career was a complete disaster. I hated every minute I was in service. And I'm, you know, the book talks about people who went, are able to straighten up a little bit when ideal conditions come along. Well, there was nothing ideal about the conditions I found in the Army. And uh, I stayed drunk for 18 months that I was in there. And I drank as alcoholically when I was 17 and 18 as I did later on when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And all I need to tell you is that it was in the time when if you could walk straight and tie your shoes and get there on time, you made sergeant. 
I went in as a buck private and came out as a buck private. And uh, In fact, they said, if you'll go out a little bit early and not make any medical claims against us, we'll give you a dishonorable discharge. But if you stay here, you're going to Leavenworth. So I got out. Well, I came home from service. I came home from service in the industry moved into the mountains, and I got a job on the ground floor in the textile mills up in the mountains, and things went along fine. I married my childhood sweetheart immediately. Uh, a year later, my son came along. Uh, three or four years later, uh, I built my first house. Uh, I got a lot of promotions on my job. Uh, I worked well, and, and uh, it looked like things were going great. This is a period of time when I had, if I ever had anything, I had normal drinking. Now, I'm not sure what normal is. I had a lady I was speaking out in Texas, and when it was over with, a little lady said, well, I can tell you what normal is, that's sitting on a washing machine. And that's about all I know. But, but during this period of time from like 48 to 62, it seemed like I was having no problems. I was, looked like I was very popular. I was in the Elks, the JCs, the VFW, the Moose, the uh, disabled veterans, uh, anything that would have me as I would join. And I look back on this thing now, instead of being popular, I was in a dry county, and all these places I belonged to served booze, so that may have something to do with it. But when I look back at this period of time from 48 to, to 62, I was in, uh, and this is real normal drinking for us in the mountains, uh, I was in five or six automobiles totally lost. Sometimes I was driving, sometimes I was riding. Most of the time we had no clue who was driving who was riding. I had one Thanksgiving day, I had three accidents in the same day. And that day I hit the same man twice. Now, and you know, I didn't hit him in the same parking lot a few minutes later. I got him 15 miles away over in the afternoon after I hit him that morning. <clears throat> and you know, in those days, you just, small town, you just called the insurance agent and reported this. And I reported that second accident. And he said, Watts, how drunk were you? You man said, you reported that accident this morning. I said, I'm not drunk, man. I hit him again. I said, give me a, you know, give me a clue anyway. Well, now, by this time, uh, a lot of things begin to happen. See, when I was just a kid, by my sister being so good, I could, the first thing I ever remember was, why can't you be like Elizabeth? Well, I learned to muster that. And, uh, well, right after we got married, it's, you know, I'm not handy with tools. I don't know a screwdriver from a pair of pliers. I don't, I don't know, I don't like gardening. I don't like, I don't have a green thumb. In fact, I never do anything that got you any, any points with the lady folks. I like hunting and fishing and shooting pool and gambling and laying out on the riverbank drunk, stuff like that, you know. <laughs> and so right away when we got, for instance, I told you that we built this house in 1954. Well, what happened is a young, bunch of young husbands bought this track of land like everybody was doing after World War II, and we were going to have these turnkey houses. Well, these handymen went to work. And uh, and that's another thing. I've just been unfortunate. If I moved into Lexington or Columbia tomorrow, the way I perceived it at this time, I'd look out the window the next morning, and the guy would have a sign over it that said, Yard of the Month. And all I ever got was like wild onion of the decade, you know. <laughs> And I'd be right in the middle of a whole bunch of handymen that can do anything, and that just it caused me all kind of problems. And and so we built these houses, and these handymen put some of them put in their plumbing, some of them put on the roof, some of them did the cabinets, all this stuff. And I think that's when I first felt the impending doom. She's looking at me, and I know she's fixing to pounce, won't know when I'm going to do something. And I. She'd gone up to her father's one July, and it dawned on me when I had a moment of clarity that nobody on that street had yet put in their mailbox. Now, an interesting thing had happened in my life by this time that I recognize in looking back is any, anything that I had to do that was distasteful or I didn't want to do or that made me uncomfortable, I signed a certain amount of drink to it. I didn't like to borrow money. I had to have a fifth. I was going to a banker. Trade cars took a fifth. I'm a kind of painter that I get to liquor before I get to drop cloth in the paint. Usually it takes the liquor, I get to liquor twice before I get to drop cloth in the paint. For instance, I, this sister and I didn't get along. I called her my two-pint sister when she was coming, you know. Well, I never had to put a mailbox in. 
So I don't know. I'm sure. I don't know how much liquor I assigned to it, but I think a good bit. What this out this mailbox got in kind of alcoholically, I think. I got a, a, a eight foot pipe, two inches in diameter, and inside of that I had the engineer uh, down at the plant spot weld another inch and a half, eight foot in diameter inside that. I came back home and I went down to Sears and got the biggest mailbox I had and put Sterling Fletcher Watts and old English letters on it. Thing of beauty, and I put it down in four feet of steel reinforced concrete and I tamped it well. And I remember, you know, this is in July and I'm sweating and drinking, and you alcoholics in here know when you worked all day real hard and drank all day in hot weather, I was just laying there in the bed and I'm just about to slip off into that drunken slumber that just, you know, how we all just, and I thought, gosh, she's going to be pleased with me when she gets back tomorrow. And the next morning about 6 o'clock, my phone rang as my neighbor. He said, Watts, what in the heck was wrong with you yesterday? I said, why? He said, you got that mailbox in face in your house. Now, now, I had about an hour to get it dug up and turned around, and when I finished, you'd have thought I'd have dug a, built a swimming pool and filled it in. Uh, another thing that began to happen here, uh, see, I was a tavern drinker. I, I loved the, the dark lights and the country music and the beautiful ladies that were there to listen to your troubles and the shuffleboard. I just loved every bit of that tavern drinking, and and my wife hated every, every minute of it. I've had her say, you almost stopped and got a beer. She got so she could tell when I was thinking about it, you know. <laughs> and and I really didn't mean to get drunk. I'd, I'd get off from work, and, and I'd stop in there just, I'd worked hard, and I just wanted a couple of beers to relax before I went home. And uh, I knew that I had a good wife at home that I loved, and I had a little boy at home, two, three, four years old at the time. And I, and I loved them, and I just meant to have two beers. And every night they'd have to throw me out when closing time came. And I didn't mean to do that. And, and because she didn't like the drinking scene, and that's all I liked, this marriage is not going too well. And by this time we developed what I call a chemical muscular reaction. Every time I've been a muscle to take a chemical, her mouth flew open. And, and we call that chin music. And that was the chinniest woman you ever saw in your life. And so I ain't getting to drink any at all in peace. And and I got to looking. By this time, I'd worked my way up in the plant, had several promotions, and I'm purchasing all the chemicals for one department and, and the machinery for another. And these salesmen that called on me drank just like I did. And they saw that I had plenty of free liquor. But the thing I noticed about them was that they left home on Monday. They didn't go home till Friday. Five, six days drinking and no, no chin music. So I left home in Virginia and came to South Carolina, and I think I came, I came down there and got a job selling chemicals, but what I came down there to do was drink in peace, and I know that today. And, uh, I, uh, in Virginia had a limit of how much liquor you could haul. They gave me a new automobile. They gave me an unlimited expense account, and guess what he told me? It was a one-owner company from up in Rhode Island. He said, nobody in the South is familiar with my company's name. And he said, take this unlimited expense account and go out there and, and, and get my company well known. Well, I got it well known. Now, I know. <laughs> hey, man, I know he meant where he had products to sell, but I got it in, in all the legal channels and everywhere. His name was well known. The name of his company was well known. Now, I put, uh, I, I put, the greatest thing I ever saw was in South Carolina, all the liquor you could buy and haul you could buy. And I put two cases in the back of that old Ford and ran up and down the road calling on all these chemical companies and all the dying and finishing plants. I used to call over here at Batesburg a lot and down at uh, Graniteville, and I'd drive up on the... And you all remember, those of you that are ancient like I am, we had no... We had no uh, mini bottles. We had uh, no bars. All we had was brown bag, and I'd pull in there and raise the trunk, and we'd have a drink or two there at the parking lot or go around to the spring or down to the fishing hole or the guy. I had one guy say, hey, and he was up here at Abbeville. He said, you called down here 19 months, and we weren't sure what you're selling. He said, we suspected you as a liquor salesman in the wrong place, you know. <laughs> well, now... And and I did my job well. I knew I knew I knew the industry and I knew the products and I could demonstrate them. But I had something else that went along well with this. You know, 
we like to say we play it, we work hard and we play hard. Well, I knew how to play hard. And I did a lot of entertaining, and they loved me to entertain because I had this deal of where if I had the alcoholic, if my alcohol content was just right, I could go two or three days and not sleep. I could play golf all day, deal cards all night, take a shower and start all over again. And these guys loved this, a man's man, you know, and they'd say things like, well, I'd rather ride with Watts and him drunk than I had Tom and him sober. And I'd just swell up and drink a pint and take them anywhere they wanted to go, you know. And, uh, but, uh, by this time, now when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I weighed almost 300 pounds. Now I have no idea when I, when I blossomed up to this, but you can imagine I'm full of fluid, my face is red and the whole bit. And, and my company had been trying to get me to take an insurance exam and I wouldn't take it. I don't know why, but it came to the point where they threatened to fire me and I went in to get this, uh, if I didn't get this insurance exam. And I went in to get this insurance exam and they took my blood pressure and all that. And she left. The nurse left, and I started rolling my sleeve down, and in the door she came with this little card. I said, what's that? She said, that's oxygen. I said, what's it for? She said, well, your blood pressure is so high, you're in stroke zone. I said, now, wait a minute. I just came in here feeling good to have an insurance exam. If my, stroke, my blood pressure is that high, then I ought to have some symptoms. Well, she said, usually you're dizzy. Well, now, I'd been dizzy for two years. <laughs> and I began to have a problem. I had a drunk alley. that I had a back, a back roads that I drove when I was coming into town. I called it Drunk Alley, and there were no state troopers on there or anything. But they had a big bridge, and I got to the point there that I was seeing three bridges. And you, I couldn't manipulate them. I, you know, I put my hand on mine, I still got two, so I'd have to pull over to the side and, and take a little nap or a snooze or whatever, and then when I'd come to, I could get it down to two bridges, I could shut it down and get across one. Well, I thought I had a brain tumor, I think. You know, I, something's wrong, bad wrong. Well, I came home to show you how sick I was, and I, I was tickled to death that drinking had absolutely nothing to do with it. It's just my blood pressure. I, I drank a pint to go home and tell them the good news. Now, by this time, by this time, she started meddling. She was noticing all this... Uh, uh, behavior going bad, so she got me to some AA meetings, and we went to some AA meetings. I'm not sure where we went, and I think we probably went to the Automobile Association some, too. She's sicker than I was, but anyway, uh, I met an old guy there named Squire. A lot of you knew Squire Jones, and he was kindly president of AA at that time up there, and uh, so, and she, she really looked up to Squire, and uh, so one day, the chin music just got unbearable. I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, well, I'll just call Squire and talk to him about AA. Her face just lit up, and I called Squire and told him I was ready to talk. He got in his car and started across town. I got in my car and left town. <laughs> now, and he got over there, and he's kind of frugal. He'd spend his gas money, I guess. And so he kind of told his story to Nancy, and she kind of told him about me, I guess, because she must have told him how bad I was shaking. And by this time I was shaking, I could thread a sewing machine. It running wide open, I'll tell you. Well, what came out of this this 12-step call that Squire made on my wife was that if I'd take honey and orange juice and Cairo syrup and orange juice, I'd be all right. So a ritual started then. I'd come home. She'd be standing there at this Cairo syrup or honey. She'd shove three tablespoons full down my throat, and then she'd hand me this concoction of half Cairo and half orange juice, and I'd drink that junk down. And by the time I got back to my clothes hamper where my vodka was, I was stuck together. I couldn't even get a, I couldn't even get a drink down. Now, I don't see much of this honey and orange juice anymore. Hollis knows about honey and orange juice, and I can tell you, you know, when you come in here to AA and you go back out there and you got a head full of AA and you got a belly full of beer, AA messes up your drinking. Well, that cotton-picking honey and Cairo don't do much for your drinking either. <laughs> it made me the sweetest drunk in the southeast. I, I always thought the fruit flies was going to be following me. Well, AA did. She could see. We both could see AA wasn't going to work, so she. She didn't give up. She found a guy who uh, had a job just like mine. He'd done exactly what I did, and AA didn't work for him, and he'd gotten all well, and he came, he'd gone to psychiatrist and gotten all well. So he came over and talked to me, and off I went. That started a new deal. I went off to the psychiatrist this time. Now, 
Uh, that's a whole other story. I had enough. I had enough Miss Kitty stories still be laying on that couch. I can tell you that. The only difference in this is that's when I think I got conned, because I'm telling him all these stories and he's sitting there listening and he's charging me seventy dollars an hour. So I think he got me this time. Well, he said an interesting thing, and it's funny. I love these psychiatrists. I got nothing against them, but I think most alcoholics can play them. And I had him going just like you know, like playing a. And he said. I got to observe him more closely. So when the next time he acts up, now listen to this, the next time he acts up, I'm going to put him where I can observe him more closely. Well, in those days, we didn't have any any uh, detox. We didn't have any treatment centers. The only place to put a drunk see the hospital or the jail. And the jail didn't want you because all those guys were going to work on the chain gang. And you in there hollering and puking and carrying on, they didn't like that. Well, so... The only place we had in Greenville was a hospital for the emotion, emotionally disturbed, and that's where I started going. It's an interesting thing. I've been over there five or six times. I've been over there in the trunk of a car. I've been over there in the back of a pickup truck, been in an ambulance, been in a way you can get over there, and every time, dog drunk, look at my dry, looking at my medical records, and they don't put drunk. There's nothing about alcoholic schizophrenia, paranoia, hypertension, see? Only thing I can figure is at those prices, they was embarrassed to write drunk down there. I, I don't know. But I was hearing nothing about my disease. I wasn't hearing anything about alcohol. In fact, uh, I'm a kind of drunk that, you know, you let me sleep off and, get, and give me a little something to eat. In about five days, I'm ready to go. And I just kind of came to. And I'm an occupational therapist. And I'm making leather watch bands and ceramic ashtrays. I am really motoring, you know. And and I could, they had these leather watch bands, and I could make three leather watch bands in one hour. And I'm talking about class stuff now. And and it took the rest of them in that class about three hours to make one. And I'm, if they hadn't run out of leather, I'd still be over there, I can tell you that. <laughs> and I remember her, she came over there, and she said, you know, your company's beginning to wonder where you are. You may get fired. I said, don't worry about it. I can stay on here as a head occupational therapist. I'm a head of the class down there. I can, you know. Well, they had another thing there. If you'd, if you'd been good all week and didn't cause any trouble, and people think that's funny, but I'll tell you the kind of trouble we caused. They had a big fountain that's still there, and it shot up about 40 or 50 feet. And I put a box of Tide in there one night. And the next morning when you looked out, they had a snowball out there as big as this room. I, they never did find out who did that. But anyway, that's the kind of problems that, that caused them problems, you know. And so, But if you've been good, we, you had classes, and there's 20 of us in this class, and there's 19 women in me. And most of these ladies were taking shock treatments, and they got nervous. And, and so, but what you did, if you'd been good, you got a reward on Saturday. You got to go on a field trip. And what that consisted of was gathering up in the, in the lobby, and they gave you a peanut butter sandwich, and you got to hike over to Kmart. Now, we gathered up there and got our sandwich, and they said, everybody here smokes, but they can't be trusted with matches. They're too nervous. And I got to take the matches, and here we head out to Kmart. I got all my little troop behind me. If they want to smoke, they got to see me. And I remember, I remember feeling like at last they found out about my leadership capabilities. I... I even, I felt like I was in officer's candidate school, you know. Now, to show you how sick I was, it was a year later before I realized what had really happened was that I was 44 years old and I'd worked my way up to keep her the matches in a nut house. That's a shock. Well, I, I came home and, and, uh, and, uh, the last time out of that hospital, I came home, obviously not getting any better. And uh, she said, uh, well, you know, you've never tried to be rehabilitated. Well, we didn't want to miss anything. I can tell you that. So off I went to Palmetto Center. And most of you are familiar with that. It's a state-run institution. And when I got there, I got the biggest resentment I ever had in my life. Now, I didn't know what a resentment was, but I got plumb mad at this. Everybody down there was a ward of the state, and it wasn't costing them anything. We had a doctor. He just locked up his office, and he he was there free. Now, I still had a job, no insurance, and it was going to cost me $600, and I was the only one paying. And I was, man, I tell you about this $600. I said, we don't sponsor AA, have nothing to do with it, 
but we allow them to come in, and they meet on Thursday night. And I'd go, I went to the meeting, I had nowhere to go. People came in telling a story like I am now. I'm sure some of you may have been down there and carried the message. And to show you, and I realize today that my perception is what I have to go by, but here's what I heard. I thought you all the sickest people I'd ever seen in my life because you drove 50 miles to tell me your troubles, and I'm spending $600 to get try to get me straightened out. Now, what made me think that you were telling me your troubles? I had a young man. He looked like he's about 25 years old. He said he couldn't take one drink without getting drunk. Well, I never felt sorry for anybody in my life. Because our daddy is awful. Can you imagine one drink drunk? You know, so... I, I wrote his name down, and I and I knew good and well that if I could get out of there, I could, if he if I could keep him buying, I could keep him drinking for probably a month. I can tell you that. Well, I got out. They said an interesting thing. They said when he got ready to discharge me, they said go back to Greenville and don't drink, and we think you'll be all right. Well, I was beginning to suspect this, but this, I'd never done what anybody told me. But I made up my mind right then, and what I was going to do was go back to Greenville, not drink. Show them it wasn't going to work for me, and I'd sue them and get my $600 back. What, what would happen? Well, I did just exactly that. I went back to drink Greenville, and I didn't drink for about five or six months. And I'm living proof here tonight, if anybody's thinking about it, when you take the alcohol away from a real alcoholic and put nothing else in, it's terrible. It's just like pouring gasoline on raw meat. All those feelings were there all this deal, and I hated everybody and everything. I got a glass about this big and filled it full of iced tea, and everywhere I went, I said, look at me, poor little old thing, 44 years old, never drink again. I said things like, let's get our milk and cookies and go to bed, you know. Because where I come from, you had to you had to drink a pint just to play with the big boys, you know. So, uh, well, I did. Uh, I hated you. You know, if you could drink and not get in trouble, and have a good time, I hated you. And if you could not drink and get and, and have a good time, I hated you. So I was just full of hate. Had I not gotten drunk, I'd have committed suicide. I did get drunk, and this started a period of four or five months, not sure how long. I drank what I call zombolically. I was just like a zombie. I didn't know whether I was going or coming. I'd come out, and I'd stern, just quickly, a stern wheel wake me up, and I'd look down. If I'm dressed up neat like I am now, and I didn't have any... Any vomit on me, I was coming home. I mean, I was going out. And I didn't know where I was going, and I'd drive around the corner, just try to settle my nerves. I'd get in the, I'd get in the, the Cono Inn, just have a few drinks, and find out, get everything settled, and this thing would turn around the whole deal again. I didn't mean to get drunk, swear, at this time praying, God just help me, I'm not going to get drunk today. And next thing I'd know, it'd be four o'clock, and I'd be drunk, been drunk all day. Or if I was coming home and I looked down, I had puke all over me. I was coming in. I didn't know where I'd been, and it was just a mess. I came back from Augusta, Georgia sometime in September, and I went back in what Nancy referred to as my rat hole. I think I went back there to die. Uh, I don't know. But I never want to forget coming to uh, I, or whatever I did. Uh, I woke up. I couldn't walk. I couldn't crawl. My legs wouldn't work. I had to crawl to the bathroom. I'll never want to forget that stench. I'd been laying back there in a drunkard's liar, and any of you alcoholics know what I'm talking about, that awful stink and smell and how clammy you are. And, and uh, But the worst thing happened. When I got a drink down, it didn't do anything for me. Liquor quit working, and I didn't know what to do. It always worked sooner or later before, and I just dropped my head over my hands, and I said, my God, nobody knows. And she said, AA may know. And she got me dressed and went to a meeting that night. And I don't know what went on at that meeting. There's one or two people around. It's not important. The important thing is, is on the way home, she said, you didn't take a white chip. Aren't you serious about this thing? I said, yes, I'm serious. But I can't get through tonight without taking a drink or I'll die. Now, what she was referring to, I told you way back there, we went to some AA meetings. And when they gave out the chips, whoever took me had been nice to me, cookies, donuts, coffee. When they gave a chip out, they'd hit me. I'd jump up and get one. If they'd hit me six times, I'd have gone right through and up to the medallion. I didn't care less. But but this night, I didn't take one. And so I think that's the first time I got serious. And and uh, I did get a drink down that night, and that was on September the 23rd. And I don't know why I did this. I do not celebrate for two days. And I don't. that was God doing for me what I couldn't have done for myself. Uh, and, and it's important to me, uh, and the more I share it, uh, the... 
it still gets more important than ever because I realize that if I'd have said the 23rd or the 24th and not being absolutely sure of a dry date that I'm a kind of dishonest alcoholic, that I'd have stayed around these rooms a certain length of time and get to thinking, well, hey, I got a dry, I got a date that, that I've told them I haven't had a drink and it's not a, it's not a real good dry date and they don't, and I'm able to fool them, I'm able to lie to them, and, uh, and I'd lost respect for you and probably drank again. But now since that, that day in September of 73, my life has made 180 degree change. I had no idea that it's possible for a human being to live the life that I live today, absolutely free from most of the time anger, resentments, uh, I'm, I'm just, there's nothing that I know about my life today, tonight, standing right here, that I haven't disclosed to God as I understand Him and another human being. I can be just what I am. Uh, I can come to you and you accept me or don't accept me, but you love me. And, and I never, I never knew that existed. I never knew that existed in life. And the freedom, the freedom from all that bondage and worry and trouble that I went through is, is just such a great gift that, that I don't think I can ever repay. And, and you know, it is a gift. I know today that this is a gift from God as I understand Him because alcoholics are going to die all over this world tonight. Alcoholics are going to die right here in Columbia tonight. And why I've got the gift, I don't know. But I do know this, that because I've got this gift, I think there comes one tremendous amount of responsibility along with this gift. I think I'm responsible for being here in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when a drunk comes through the door like I am. I'm responsible to be here to pass along everything that I've learned and Alcoholics Anonymous, and what's in the first 164 pages of the big book. I don't think that I've got the right to add on to that, delete from it, or change it in any way. My job and my responsibility is to pass it along to him just the way the 100 passed it along to me through another member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and that's a pretty big responsibility. And I'm glad that I do feel responsible for that because that's the one thing that makes my life so happy, joyous, and free today is being on the firing line and in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just a great way to live. Now, I'm also uh, absolute proof that you don't have to do everything right when you come in here for this to work. Uh, I did a lot of things wrong. Now, the one thing that I did do, and I want this out front before I forget it, I had to get a home group, I had to get a sponsor, and I had to get, uh, I had to attend meetings. And I attended meetings regularly, and I attended them often. And the home group saved my life. Uh, they said, get a sponsor. And the way I got a sponsor, there's an old man there that I had talked to. I was looking everybody over about sponsorship, and I, this old man was a CB, and uh, an old CB, and he had said he'd been sober 29 years. And now, he got sober in 45, knew Bill Wilson personally and all of this. And, and I knew that the old man drank like I did. And I didn't believe he'd been sober 29 years. And I thought if he could make you believe that lie, I wanted what he had. I can tell you that. <laughs> now, the old man couldn't see to drive at night, and I drove him everywhere we went. And he would speak, and when he got through speaking, I was with keen eye, I'd notice who picked up a... Uh, a white chip or a 30-day chip or 90 days, and when it was over, I'd go up and put my arm around him. I'd say, man, you keep on coming back. This thing really works. Between me and that speaker, we got almost 30 years in this thing, you know. <laughs> well, I uh, another thing that we had an old lady there in that group, and uh, every night she'd give me her phone number. She'd say, you take this. You call me before you take a drink. And I'd say, Taylor, you gave me that last week. You might have lost it, honey. Take my phone number and call me. Well, one day I've been out road traveling, and I'm coming home, and, and I'm just, I've already called home, and the chin music is ready to start, and, and the customers haven't been doing what I want, and it's just been a bad week, and I stopped at the rest area on, on 85, and I called Taylor, and I told her who I was, and I said, now, I've had this bad week. And I got to pass seven liquor stores before I get home. You said to call you what you want me to do. She said, go out in the median and strip off naked and stand there till they take you to jail. Now, <laughs> now I said, 
That dang old woman must be crazy. And I hung that phone up and went right by, just mad as she'd insulted my intelligence. But what happened was, you see, in that home group, Taylor had sat there every Friday night and listened to my BS, and she knew what I was trying to do. She, I was trying to find a way to circumvent, find a situation you didn't have covered, and I said, see, I'm different. So what she actually did was steal my slip. And I was a slip planner, and I planned slips, and I had a lot of people plan my to steal my slip. And, and I'm thankful to this day for everybody that helped steal my slips. Now, some of them, some of them had to drink to do this. I remember that it dawned on me I never had any light beer. And that sounded real in. I remember sitting on the front, right up on the front, this night when the speaker's going, and I had a mug of beer sitting up here with the frost running down it. And I'm sitting there thinking about that light beer. Well, that night when it was over, Sam picked up a chip, and Sam had about as much time as I did, 90 days or something. And I went up there, and it looked like he'd been crushed. I mean, his face was black and blue, and the tooth was out. And I said, what in the world happened? He said, Wednesday a week ago, I started drinking light beer. Now, I said, well, scratch plan A, you know. So I... But but one day I'm sitting back there I'm sitting back there and and I look around and you people are you people are serious you're good people and this thing's working for you and I know it is but you see I'm different and it's not gonna work for me but dadgummit, y'all have been so nice to me I got to let you off easy so I made a commitment that I'd do everything you told me to do exactly the way you told me to do it and I proved to you it wouldn't work for me now if anybody's out there and tried all the conventional ways. Simple. Just try that. Do what they tell you. Right when they tell you to do it, prove to them it's not going to work. Uh, I was amazed. I didn't know before I ever got started, not halfway through. I, you see, when I started, the first thing I did when I slowed down was to listen, and that's what y'all have been saying. Listen. Well, I started talking the day I hit that door, and I hadn't been listening, and I started listening, and we'd be sitting around this table, and people would start talking about something very eerie, how a circumstance had come up, and they were in a place where they thought about taking a drink, and somebody helped them out of it, and now they were back, and they didn't have that slip, and things just great. And everybody would smile and say, isn't it great how God's working in your life? Well, now, strange things have been happening to me, and I contend that no matter what, no matter what your attitude may be, if you tend enough AA meetings on a regular basis, Strange things are going to begin to happen to you. I said one time I thought there must be 50 million of you. Every time I'd start to go in a liquor store, there'd stand somebody or somebody would pass and wave at me, you know. And But but a lot of these things, and I had a couple of things that had happened to me that these different things, people showed up to keep me from taking a slip, and I shared a couple of them. And they all smiled and said, isn't it great how God's working in your life? And it dawned on me, maybe maybe God was working in my life. And you see what happened here, and I'll be forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous for this. I had a home group, and they and I went to that home group, and Taylor was able to help me because I had been there on a regular basis, and she saw what I was like, and she was able to help me, and the group was able to help me. And what you did, what that home group did, was they allowed me to stay around, put up with all my foolishness, and they had the patience and the understanding to allow me to stay there until I become teachable. And once I became teachable, then I could they let me borrow their God and showed me how their God was working in their life till I could get some concept of a God of my own. And they could point out to me that God was working in my life. And it's the same way today. I don't always know when God's working in my life. A lot of times you have to point out to me. And when I think things are the worst and things are going, they'll say, hey, just take it easy. And when I get on the other side, I look back. I look back, and I'm, it was absolutely what I needed. So, now, I got with my sponsor, and he took me by the hand and walked me through the steps, and I learned a lot from that fourth and fifth step. I learned a lot about life, about honesty, about... But the main thing I learned about was me, and I didn't realize that what I didn't know about was me. I didn't know what my limitations were, what my capabilities are. I'm not a very talented person, and like you know, I always thought you were better than I was, no matter what it was. I shouldn't try it because I can't be perfect at it. That's not true. I learned that what it is, no matter what my meager talents are, my job 
is to just do the very best I can on a daily basis with whatever God gave me to work with. And when I do that, then I know I'm successful. It doesn't matter about whether I reach the goal or not, but as long as I'm doing the very best I can possibly do, then then I don't feel... You know, and I, I believe, in my own case, and the guys I sponsor, we talk about this a lot, that as we stay sober on a daily basis and ask God in the morning to work in our lives and thank Him again at night, and after we've done our amen steps and and we get over to 10 and, and we do 10 on a regular basis and we get down to step 11 and make that a part of our living, that we subconsciously I have developed a contract with God as I understand it. And I've got a 36-inch yardstick, and I know when I don't measure up to 36 inches. I know what my contract is, and it may not be the same as yours, but I know when I'm not doing what God wants me to do as far as He and I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. And so, you know, everything that I've ever learned uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous has, whenever I felt like that I, that God had a, a, a job that He needed to be done, some human to do, and I got to do it, the message of that came from another alcoholic. Every message I ever felt like I got. So when I come to an AA meeting, all I'm doing is checking in to get my messages. And when I'm out there not getting my messages and don't check in, things go just astray as if if I don't get my messages for work or, or whatever. So it's very important to me. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I've i had more things happen to me uh, since I've been, uh, been sober, more trauma in my life than I ever had. When I was uh, when I was sober, uh, I mean when I was drinking, uh, I'm a kind of drunk that can't stand death. I just don't handle death well. It's because it confused me. And when I got confused, I always got drunk. And so when my mother died, I got drunk. When my daddy died, I got drunk. Both cases, I made an ass out of myself, uh, and had a lot of amends. It took me a long time to make. Now, I'd been sober. I'd been sober ten years, and my wife of uh, of 35 years, my Al-Anon of 10 dropped dead very suddenly. Three months later, my sponsor died. Six months later, my only sister died. And these were very troublesome times for me. Now, I had been fortunate because I had seen the old-timers that I went to meetings with. This is another place in my home group. When these old-timers had trauma in their life, they got involved in AA. They tripled up on AA. They doubled up. They got more involved. They worked with, they just put, intensified their efforts to get into AA. They came into the rooms and let y'all love them back. And, and I did this. And, uh, and I can tell you in my, ever since I've been sober, when I come in here and I ask, truly ask for God for the power that I need to get through a situation, I've always found the power right here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I found the power here in Alcoholics Anonymous to get me from here to here in all, a lot of situations that there's no way that I could have started drinking and gotten through. They don't steal enough alcohol. And if they did, I'd be a, I'd be a wet drunk, a wet brain. So the power is here, friends, that I found if I'm willing to come and tap into it. The other thing that I like about that 11th step, it not only tells me what to pray for, it tells me that more than likely after I know what God's will is for me, I'm not going to have the power to carry out that. And you know that is so true that I have to ask for that power. Because my troubles today are not for not are not from not knowing what to do. It's from not being able to do or not or won't do what I know is the next right thing to do. Uh now after my wife died I was very lonely. Very lonely. And because I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, I met a wonderful lady named Donna. A lot of you know Donna. Uh she's a tremendous member of Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, she's coming up in July. She'll be celebrating 20 years, and we've had a we've had a great life. We've been married now 18 years, and she's what 20 years sober, and I'm 28 years sober. And she has to have a program, and I have to have a program. And we've de- more importantly, we've developed a program together. And every day we every day that we're at home, we hold hands, we we read together, we meditate together, and we pray together, and we invite God into this marriage to come into this marriage every day and work with us all day. And I can tell you this, a little bit later over in the day when tensions run high and you may be getting ready to say something that you would, you wish you weren't, wouldn't have said, when you think about you've invited God in, it tempers what, what you might be doing with your tongue. And 
Donna has developed something that I'm not sure is original. But when I get all steamed up and she can see I'm angry and the, the tendons stand out on my neck, she'll look at me and she'll say, I'm Donna. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> now, what does this do? This lets me know what we are and we can't afford anger. That's best left to other people that can handle it. Secondly, it lets me know how we act when we go to an AA meeting. And so it works for us. See, God's been good to this old grunt. I had an Al-Anon for 10 years and had a great life. And I've had an alcoholic now for 17 or 18 years. And it's all worked. And I think the reason they both work is because we put the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and God as we understand Him to work on a daily basis. And we put that before anything else. Because without those two things... See, I have a hard time distinguishing between love and God and Alcoholics Anonymous. In my life, if I take Alcoholics Anonymous away, I'm not comfortable. If I try to take God away, I'm not comfortable. Take love away, I'm not comfortable. And I can tell you about this God deal. I'll try, I'm in phase three of, out, of, of sobriety. I've tried it without God. I've tried it with, as God. And now I'm trying it with God. And I believe of all the, all the phases, with God is working much better. Now, I've got, uh, I want to tell you, I've got a couple of guys that came down here with me tonight, and I, I, I want to thank them for that. And I don't want people to think, a lot of people think when you bring a couple of guys from your hometown with you that you're sponsoring a lot of people or they're not. The reason is in Greenville, if you owe money, they ain't going to let you this far away from home without sending somebody out to see if you come back. But I'm thankful they did come down. Uh, I, I kid them. I tell them they're borderline unfortunate, you know. But uh, but life is good. And I haven't. I, I, about a, what four years ago I retired, and uh, I was frightened to retire, and I wasn't sleeping at night. And it dawned on me, what did I need to do? I just turned it over, and I got out of the bed two o'clock in the morning, and said, God, handle this thing. Well, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna retire for 18 months. And I swear to you, within with less than 45 days, I'm retired. I'm home, and no no question about it. And it's worked out beautifully. I've got I didn't know I was a workaholic, and what am I going to do? And it ain't going to be working in the yard. You can bet on that. And uh, <laughs> and so I volunteer down at Intergroup now, and I enjoy that. And there's been a lot of I'm able to get more involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a lot of guys needing to go through the steps, and God's provided the time for me to do that. So life's good now in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and uh, I, uh, I owe all that to, to a higher power that I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I told you that I had that one son, and uh, he has two grandchildren. He has two children, and, and they're almost grown. They're grown, and they've never seen their grandfather take a drink. And if nothing else comes out of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's that's enough reward right there for anything. And I tell you this because they haven't been too wrapped up in AA. They're glad I'm there, but they don't come to many meetings. And a little girl came to me, my granddaughter, and she asked me if I'd come over and speak to her class in school on alcoholism. And I really felt good about that. And uh, and I went over to school that morning. I'm standing out there in the, in the lobby, and this little old gray-headed principal walks up to me, and she looks me right now, and she said, Are you Allison's grandfather? Now... I don't know whether I'm ever going to find out who I am or not. But thank God tonight I know what I am. I'm a real alcoholic that's found a substitute for alcohol, and that helps me to trudge the road to happy destiny. Thank you. Um.